We're six weeks into the series on manifesting as sons. So we've had knowing the time of your manifestation from Shasan. Charles gave us the purpose of manifesting. And Tina has taught about the role of prayer in manifesting as sons. We've also had two parts on Arise, where Shasan encouraged us to wake up and fulfill God's purpose for our lives. And he's dealt with questions like, why are we here? What is the purpose? What are we expected to be doing? And that purpose comes with responsibility. So today we're going to look at how we execute the rights and responsibilities of sonship. And we're going to do that by going to the Bible and looking at one son who got it totally wrong. One son who got it totally right. And then two sons who each got it half wrong. So would you turn with me please to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Let's set the scene. Moses led the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt and to the promised land. Moses didn't quite make it himself. He died and Joshua took them through and he spent some time conquering the cities in the promised land there. And after that came the period of the judges, several hundred years. And you can read about that in the book of Judges. And towards the end of that period, we meet a man who was a great Old Testament judge and prophet, the prophet Samuel. And he did many great things. He was a great prophet of God to the people of Israel during that time. One of the things apparently he didn't do too well, though, was parenting. And his sons turned out to be quite nasty, wicked men. Um, and ultimately, at the end of his life, he installed them as judges over Israel. And he was just about to die. And the people of Israel kind of looked forward and realized what would happen when Samuel died. They'd be led by these people who were, these guys were not very, not very good guys. And so for this reason and for, for other reasons, the people of God cried out and said, we want a king. Give us a king. All the other nations have kings. And it wasn't really in God's plan. Nevertheless, God gave them a king. And you can read about them demanding a king in 1 Samuel 8 there. But let's pick it up from 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome per person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So this is a great start, isn't it? He's got great genetics, Saul there. His, his father was a mighty man of power. And he himself, at least physically, was uh, a, a fine figure of a man. He was the most handsome man and he was taller than anybody else in Israel by a long way. Maybe he was six foot eight or, or seven foot tall. He was an impressive individual. And so 
from verse 3, now donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And the next several verses are about how Saul goes out and finds or looks for donkeys. Um, let's pick it up in verse 15. It said, now the Lord has told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came. Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So he's going to be the commander of Israel. Later we understand that includes he's going to be king. So from 27, 9 verse 27, so Saul meets Samuel um, and then as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel says to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went, went on. But you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? And when you've departed from me today and he tells him a few other things, uh, and one of the things that will happen, verse 5, so it says, After that you shall come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen that when you come to the city, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from a high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them. And then and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. So Saul is learning all about his role, his rights and his responsibilities. And it looks very good. He's going to be the commander of, the, of, the, of Israel. And the spirit of the Lord is going to be upon him and he's going to prophesy. So he's got all the, all, all the tools that he's going to need in future. Then it goes on. Verse 7. Let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands for God is with you. Now here's. A really important verse, verse 8. This is Samuel telling Saul, You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what to do. That's very clear, isn't it? Later, Saul's going to not do that. So it was when he turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. So that the, the Bible talks about giving us a, a taking out our heart of flesh and giving us a, a heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. So this I, I believe this is a kind of regeneration here in, in, in the Old Testament. So God is giving him all that he needs, uh, a new heart, the spirit of God. And then all these signs came to pass that day when they came to the, when they came to the hill. There was a group of prophets to meet him and the spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied amongst them. And so Samuel is going to bring the people together in the, towards the end of this chapter and he's going to make him king. Let's go from verse 20. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And when he caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, has this man come here yet? Has he even arrived? 
And the Lord answered, there he is, hidden among the equipment. He's hiding in the baggage. He's found a place amongst the suitcases to hide. That's not very good, is it? Not, not a good start. So they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see whom the Lord has chosen that there is no one like him among all the people? So all the people shouted and said, long live the king. Then note this, Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty and he wrote it in a book and he laid it up before the Lord. So Samuel had the the rights and responsibilities given to him. He had the anointing from God. He even had Samuel going through in great detail with him and the people exactly what his responsibilities were as king. And he even wrote it in a book. So Saul really had no excuse. So they all they all went home. Um, and there's there's quite a good start for him actually. Chapter eleven. I'm not going to read it, but. Saul saves the city of Jabesh Gilead from the enemy. Um, the, the spirit of God comes upon him and he leads Israel in battle. And, and there's a great victory there. So, you know, he's, he's, he's doing okay. Um, however, things start creeping in. And his first major mistake was here in chapter 13. So... Uh, what's happening here in chapter 13 is, verse 4, Now all Israel heard that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had become an abomination to the Philistines, and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Now remember what Samuel had said about Gilgal. He had some very specific instructions. Um, so verse 7, uh, in the middle of verse 7 there, As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and the people followed him trembling. And then he waited seven days, according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. Oh no. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he'd finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came to him and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. Um, the problem here, there's two things that he's done wrong. First of all, he's, Saul has not understood his rights. The offerings were to be done by the Levites and he was a Benjaminite. Benjamite. And secondly, he had an express instruction from God not to do this. Wait until Samuel comes and I'll tell you what to do. I'll show you what to do. And he's gone again, got absolutely gone against it. Um, so he's not taking his right seriously and he's not taking his responsibility seriously. And Samuel said, verse 11, what have you done? And Saul said, he had an excuse, of course. Well, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together, uh, then I said, the Philistines will come now down on me at Gilgal, and I will have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. 
You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. That's David we see later. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So there's a there's a rejection there and this is a bad example for us it's an example of of it not working and so it goes on and from here on really Saul goes downhill he starts in chapter 14 where he has he gives a, a rash oath he gives a, a stupid promise basically that nobody should eat before we put our enemies to death uh, and anyone who does I'm, I'm going to kill it was a bit of a stupid thing to say to the army, and in the end, he, he needed to. He was going to go kill his own son because of that, which would have been wrong. Uh, chapter fifteen, God tells him to utterly destroy the Amalekites, but he doesn't. And fifteen verse ten says, "Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly.' This is God saying, "I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king." For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And from verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Um, then there's the story of David and Goliath in chapter 17. Saul does not account well for himself there. It's David who steps out in faith and strength. Really, Saul should have been destroying the Philistines and subduing them. But the, chapter 17 tells us Saul was greatly afraid. So that's not great. He then, chapter 18, he attempts to murder David, who's the anointed king to come. Chapter 19, he has another attempt on David's life. And then it's just getting worse and worse. Chapter 22, he murders the Lord's priests at a place called Nob. Um, once again, he's chasing David in chapter 23 to murder him. And then it, it gets really bad by chapter 28 there, um, because this is the king of Israel who should be going to God for advice. What he does, though, instead of going to God, he goes to a fortune teller and asks her to conjure up a spirit to tell him what to do. He, he asks her to conduct a seance. This is the king of Israel. What, what heights he's fallen from to this place. And ultimately, he ends at the end of the book of 1 Samuel in that last chapter 31. Saul and his sons die on a single day, fighting the very enemies of God that he should have subdued. He was told very clearly at the beginning what were his rights, what his role was, what his responsibilities were, and he was not careful to do them. And his life was, after that point, really a disaster and ended in, in disaster. Don't be like Saul. Let's turn to Genesis 37, please. Now, just to set the scene, God made a covenant with Abraham that his descendants would be as uncountable as the stars. 
that he would have exceeding fruitfulness and that nations and kings would come from himself. And he passed this on to uh, the son of promise was Isaac, Abraham's son. Uh, Genesis 26 um, is when God was renewing the covenant with Isaac and reminding him about the covenant with Abraham. This, uh, the knowledge of the, the covenant with God is passed on from generation to generation. And in Genesis 28, Isaac passes on the blessing to Jacob. And then Genesis 32, Jacob receives his own blessing from God when he wrestles with him. You can read the story there. And at that point, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And so when we read about Jacob and Israel in the Bible, those are the same people. That's the same person. Um, and that's where we get the name Israel from, for the nation. And he has 12 sons who ultimately become uh, that nation. And we're going to pick up the story with, with his second youngest son, Joseph. So from Genesis 37 verse 1. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, the son of Zilpha, his father's wives. So he was with his half-brothers. And he brought a bad report of them to his father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a tunic of many colours. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I've dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. He's had a word from God about what's going to happen in the future, that in the context of the gathering of harvest and grain and food, his brothers would bow down before him. He's only 17, but he knows something that's going to happen in the future and he goes on uh, obviously the brothers didn't like that um, then he dreamed another dream this is verse 9 he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said look I have dreamed another dream and in this time the sun the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to me this is his his family including his mother and, and uh, father bowing down in the context of sun moon and stars in, in the Bible speaks of authority. It, it's a picture of, of authority that he's going to be in over his family. Uh, and he told it to his father and brothers and his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream? Uh, shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come bow down to earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And so God showed Joseph his rights and responsibilities right at the beginning of his adulthood when he was 17. So the story goes on, many of us know it, his, his brothers were going to murder him but ultimately sold him into slavery uh, in Egypt. And so let's pick this up in verse, in chapter 39 now, Joseph's a slave. 39 verse 1. Now Joseph, 
had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an, office, an officer of Pharaoh, that's the name for king in Egypt, the king of Egypt, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who'd taken him down there. Now the Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man and he was in the house of, the, of his master, the Egyptian, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favour in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he'd made him overseer of the house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and the field. And thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he didn't even know what he had except for the bread that he ate. So this was not the ultimate end and aim of Joseph's life. When we read the story, he's, he's destined for much greater things. But the blessing of God was on him. And in the place that he found himself, in slavery, he still executed the rights and responsibilities that he'd been given. He was a man of authority and he knew God had raised him up for great purpose. And he didn't let being in slavery really get to him in this. He went ahead and just executed those wherever he found himself. So then the story goes on and he gets in some trouble. His master's wife takes a liking to him and he rejects her. And this ends up with him in prison. And so in 3921, it says the Lord was with Joseph and he showed him mercy and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. He's even getting favor when he's in chains, when he's in prison. And the keeper of the prison, just like Potiphar, he committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because was, the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it, made it prosper. So even, even in prison, he was executing the rights and the responsibilities that God had given him, the place that he found himself, and God blessed him. And the story goes on in the next chapter. He interprets dreams for Pharaoh's butler and baker who were also in there. And the baker didn't make it, but the butler was restored. And uh, in 41, the butler had remembered that Joseph was an interpreter of dreams. And he mentioned this to Pharaoh when Pharaoh had his own dreams that needed uh, interpreting. So 41 verse 25. So Pharaoh's told Joseph his dreams and Joseph is interpreting. He says, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. They're both the same. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. They're both the same. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. 
uh, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. And he goes through and he, and he tells Pharaoh that there's going to be a famine of seven years. And he also tells them what he should do about it. From verse 33, Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Israel, uh, over the land of Egypt, sorry. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one fifth of the produce in the plentiful years. And he gives him a strategy for how to deal with the famine. Verse 37. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all, all the land of Egypt. Now, finally, God has raised him up and placed him in the place where he was supposed to get to. And the prophecy uh, is fulfilled. If you look at 42 verse 6, the brothers of Joseph uh, find themselves in this famine that Joseph was prophesying there. Um, and they find themselves in trouble without enough food. So they go down to Egypt. And it says in verse 6, Now Gov Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came down and, and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. This was what was predicted right at the beginning in the context of the harvest and, and the grain that his brothers would bow down. And the rest of chapter 42 and actually the next five chapters up to 47 is a, is a long story of getting Israel's entire family to come to Egypt in the time of famine so that they were provided for and they, so they would not die. They were safe from the famine. And ultimately, this is why hundreds of years later, the now nation of Israel was in Egypt. And that's where Moses led them out from, just to tie those things together. So what does this tell us? Joseph was a man who, who knew his, his responsibilities, the things that God had called him to. First, as a son of Abraham, he understood who he was. Uh, in, in the family and then God gave him his own specific role through those dreams and then he is importantly for this story and for what we need to learn I believe is that wherever he was he acted upon it when he was a slave he acted out those those rights responsibilities that God had given him and he prospered he was even in prison yet still he executed those rights and responsibilities and God blessed him and then ultimately God brought a great deliverance for the nation of Israel through him and he was a great example also for us and his story is recorded for all time in the Bible it's a great story and just as a, a side note in fact this is one of the great types or pictures in the Old Testament of Jesus Joseph is a great picture of Jesus. And let me describe Joseph in, in 
in a certain way, and you'll see what I mean. These statements can be said about Joseph and about Jesus. Beloved son, supreme in his father's eyes, Joseph and Jesus. Suffering servant, rejected by his brethren, Joseph and Jesus. Exalted saviour, lifted high over all, in princely splendour and administrative authority. It's a great picture of Jesus. And I encourage you to read the whole story of, of Joseph. It's one of my favourite stories in the Bible. And as you do so, think about Jesus. In the Bible, we see Jesus on every page. And Joseph is a great example of this. So then finally, that was, uh, that was one son who got it totally wrong, Saul. One son who got it totally right, Joseph. Now let's look at the two sons who got it each got it half wrong. And let's turn to Luke chapter 15, please. And we're going to read from verse 11. This is called the, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And it's a parable by Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. He knew his rights. This is the right of inheritance. However, he wasn't so good on the responsibilities. So he divided them to his, that, that was his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living, extravagant living. But when he'd spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen. He went to, to work for somebody. He went to work for a farmer and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. He went him to be a pig keeper. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the, the pig food, the, pod, the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of, his, of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I'm perishing with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And when he arose, he came to his father. But when he was a still, still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. This son in some ways was like Saul. He didn't take his responsibilities properly and he ended up in the worst possible case wishing he could eat even the food he was feeding the pigs now the difference is that jesus was using this part part of this tells us that there is redemption and even if you get to the worst possible place there's you can be restored and brought back it's a salvation message hallelujah thank you jesus so there's another son isn't there and he's 
Alderson was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. So he called out to one of the servants and, and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he's received safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, look, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. He says, look, I've always taken my responsibilities here seriously, but you never even gave me a goat for the meat for a party with my friends. This one knew his responsibilities, but he didn't know his rights. So he goes on, it says, but as soon as this son of yours came, who's devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you're always with me and all I have is yours. He could have asked for that goat or even a, a, even the fatted calf. He, he, he didn't know though, but it was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So this second son shows us that the responsibilities alone are not enough. We also have to know our rights, our inheritance in this case. And we must exercise them. All these things must work together for success. So let's be like Joseph, who did these things. We, we should understand our, our rights and responsibilities before God our inheritance, who we are, these things that we've been preaching about these last weeks and even these last couple of years. Go look at the YouTube channel if you want to understand more about what our rights and responsibilities are. And I just want to finish with some practical examples to bring it down to earth. So, for example, I know that in the meeting today, there are some young ladies who are not married yet and don't have children. And perhaps you feel called to the wonderful privilege of being a mother. Many women are, some aren't, but maybe you are. But until you get there, you can do things now to prepare yourself, to execute some of those rights and responsibilities that you see coming and get yourself ready. So go babysit for other mothers, read about childcare, help out at the youth group, help other mothers. And it goes for you young men as well. Many of you will be fathers. So get to know children, you go babysit as well. Do you feel called to preach in the future sometime? You can see yourself as a preacher. Well, brilliant, start, where you are now, contribute to the Bible study, even just two minutes. It's like a preparation for preaching. Bring testimonies in meetings, in a small group, bring the word there and God will raise you up. Start where you are. Do you feel called in business to be the CEO of your company? You feel that God's gonna raise you up and you're gonna lead a business of thousands of people. 
Excellent. Start where you are now. If you've got those responsibilities and those rights, you have that uh, vision and direction from God, then start where you are. Manage the few people you manage well. Look after them. Look out for them. Be a great manager and God will raise you up. Do you feel called to be a great evangelist? And we're all evangelists, but sometimes God gives people a special anointing and passion for that. And it's the main thing they do. If that's you, you you can see yourself leading thousands of people to Christ. Excellent. Start where you are. Start next door with that neighbor, with that family member, with that one person at work who, uh, who seems open to the gospel. Wherever you are, start and God will raise you up. Do you feel called to lead a church one day? Maybe in Manchester, maybe somewhere else in the UK or somewhere else in the world. Maybe you feel God's gonna lead you to have a massive church somewhere doing great works and you're gonna lead that. Maybe that's in your heart now. Well, wherever you are right now, start. Look after the people around you. Bring the word to the people of God right around you in the church now. And God will raise you up. Wherever we are, whatever we, whatever position we find ourselves, with whatever vision, whatever greatness of vision that God has put into our hearts, like Joseph, as a slave or in prison, we can even start there. And that's how it works. God raises us up from that position. So be like Joseph. Don't be like Saul.